This is Michael Whalen, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic, and hopefully you'll survive the experience and find some wondrous things in the offing. So let's have fun. Monsters, Madness, and Magic. <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, my guest in this episode needs no introduction, though I'll do my best. Join me as I chat with legendary artist Michael Whalen about childhood creativity, rockets, the Twilight Zone, Elric of Melnibane, Michael Moorcock, H.P. Lovecraft, the supernatural, including, but not limited to, psychics, a curious circle of cats found on his roof at midnight, and much more. As always, folks, thanks for listening, and if you'd like to help the show out, please leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Why don't you take us back in time to when you were a youngster? You know, were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Uh, Not so much a troublemaker. I was too clever to get in trouble most (laughs) of the time. I'm a pretty sneaky guy when it comes to uh, doing shit. I learned early on that as long as I got good grades, I could get away with just about anything. As long as I didn't come home in a police car, you know? (laughs) Right, right. So uh, I was a reader early on. I remember uh, before I could read, whenever my parents got a newspaper, I'd open it up to where the movie ads were and look at the ads for The Thing or whatever science fiction pictures were coming out at the time. And and I think the first word I learned was from uh, reading an advertisement, you know, for a horror movie or something. That was an instigation there. And, And so I started getting into science fiction horror i discovered richard matheson like when i was nine years old and i started reading everything of his i could get my hands on some of the the movies when i was pretty young well my my family moved every year or so so i went to um four different high schools three junior highs eight elementary schools we moved around a lot and i was always in a situation of being in a neighborhood without having any friends yet so drawing and painting and reading were uh, my favorite ways of passing the time. My dad worked in the space industry, so we lived near White Sands Testing Ground for a while, Alamogordo, and usually near missile bases or Air Force bases. So I saw a lot of rockets going up when I was growing up. So the science fiction books that I came across didn't represent fantasy to me. They were a reality, our coming reality. I figured by the time I was 50, I'd be going to the moon or whatever, but (laughs) it didn't work out that way. I was reading, uh, you have an extensive bio, obviously, on your website. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, your grandmother, because you said she ushered her children to work in vaudeville, so it looks like your family just has a deep history in the arts, you know? Yeah. Let me see. My uncle, Ken, was a producer, a TV producer in NBC, I think it was, and uh, I have two aunts who were uh, well-known dancers, and they performed in New York and Vegas and places like that. 
childhood. My father uh, ran away from home, joined the Canadian Tank Corps, and uh, before they got shipped out to get wiped out by Rommel's Africa Corps, he deserted, went AWOL, hitchhiked back into the U.S., went to San Diego and joined the Marine Corps. He got sent to the South Sea. He uh, was in the 1st Marine Division that stormed the beaches. Well, they, they walked on the beaches, actually, at Guadalcanal and Tulagi and some of the other uh, islands there. But then he, he got malaria and they shipped him back to the States. And they had a naval hospital in Balboa Park in San Diego, and he fell in love with San Diego when he recovered and made up his mind that eventually he would move to California. So after the war, he was on uh, the GI Bill. He went to Princeton, got to actually see um, Albert Einstein. And he was an English major, but he ended up being involved with engineering. And that's how he got involved with missile defense contractors like Lockheed. And he was mm. a company rep for Lockheed. And you know, whenever a Atlas Sagina was launched from Vanderbilt Air Force Base and it blew up, he was the one who had to figure out whose fault it was. He was under a lot of emotional stress because everyone hated him wherever he went because he was the guy who was going to point the fingers for the Defense Department and, you know, who did what wrong. And, you know, so he had a lot of stress and did a lot of drinking, but uh, I didn't see a whole lot of him. But I did get to see a lot of cool things, you know, missile launches and stuff like that. So it was very... Um, formative you know in my youth he taught dance at one point right oh i mentioned that Who, where'd you find that out uh, <laughs> yeah. i'll do some research you know <laughs> yeah yeah in la he uh worked at the arthur godfrey or whatever it was called uh, dance studio and he met a famous actress who uh, wanted to get him in the Hollywood, and they flirted with that for a while, but I guess that didn't pan out. I've seen the publicity photos. Pretty handsome guy. I was, it just made me think, you know, you said your grandma kind of tried to usher his siblings into vaudeville. Did you notice that he had a love of stage or acting or anything like that, even though he didn't pursue it? He did draw, you know, and he, uh, the whole time he was in the Marine Corps during the war, he was sending letters to my mom. He always drew cartoons over the envelopes, and she saved them all. And I remember when I found them, I was blown away by how cool they were. He, he had a lot of talent, but he was, I think, too insecure to try to develop it. He had, he had some definite natural talent in that regard. You do mention that um, Vandenberg Air Force Base in your bio and how it was a big influence on your future work. What are some of your memories growing up there that stand out to you? Well, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and, and the house was shaking. And uh, looking out through my bedroom window and seeing the Titan 3C going up. I mean, that kind of thing has got to be a big influence on you, you know. And it was making my bed roll across the floor. So it was such a staggering view. And, and so when I saw Invaders from Mars, there's a scene where the kid in the, in the movie looks out his window and he sees a flying saucer landing, you know, in a field uh, a short distance away from their house. I felt an instant connection with that guy. And so it was a, a great leap of imagination to start thinking that flying saucers were real. And I wasn't ever scared of the conventional monsters like Dracula or ghosts or anything because I didn't believe in them but aliens and UFOs seemed a lot more plausible to me so every town that we moved to I would go right to the section of the library that had flying saucer books in fact I still remember the decimate the uh, Dewey Decimal Code for that section of the library it's <laughs> 629.1388 that's where all the flying saucer books were and uh, if there were any there that I hadn't read before, I would read them. I was just totally fascinated. Between the ages of 10 and 12, especially, I, I read every book available about them. And some of them were pretty scary to me. Right. You know, obviously, being a fan of sci-fi, that leads you into looking into actual 
UFO cases like you just mentioned. Did, did any of them stand out to you or do you still look? Are you still interested in UFOs and such? They're in the news right now. <laughs> yeah, not so much anymore. I've lost my faith in them to a certain degree. I think most of them will probably be explainable by conventional science. But, you know, I always hope every time I go outside at night and I look up and I hope I see something there. You know, I've had so many dreams where walked out of the house at night and there's a flying saucer there or a UFO of some sort and, and you know I'd make contact or some creature would come out and I would meet it and uh, you know so that was one of the two major themes of all my dreams growing up the other one was uh, nuclear war you know and fear oh, of wow uh, nuclear devastation so I had a lot of dreams about atomic bomb attacks and and running for shelter and stuff like that for a long time UFOs seemed really real to me but then when I I started to become more mature and especially now and in, in the digital era when everyone's got a camera on them and their phone uh, if there was really any significant evidence of their existence you'd think that it, it would be really incontrovertibly uh, documented you know by people you know a meteor goes over Russia and thousands of people captured on dash cams and stuff like that, you know. So if there were real realistic UFOs, I would think they would be a lot more in evidence, but I'm, I'm willing to be surprised <laughs> and disabused of that notion, but <laughs> my faith in it has, has diminished quite a bit. It's almost similar to the case of the blurry Bigfoot photos, you know, there's no... Uh... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right, yeah. All these HD I mean, phones. got a camera in their back pocket now, so... Were you a big fan of the Twilight Zone growing up? Oh my God, yeah. Hmm scared the shit out of me some of them the, the one nightmare at twenty thousand feet which is written by one of my favorite authors richard matheson there's that scene where he's on the airplane even though the you know when i became older and i, I saw the, the episode again and realized how goofy looking the monster was but when william shatner <laughs> toys with opening up the curtain and he opens the curtain up and there's a face staring at him i had a, an event that happened to me like that when i was a kid and you know so it scared the living daylights out of me i'm sure i had nightmares about it i i used to deliver i used to have paper routes and when i was let's see i was in eighth grade so 13 i had a paper route when we were living in santa maria california and i had a friend who offered to help me on my sunday morning deliveries and the papers would flop down uh, outside on the street for me to, you know, rubber band and everything around four o'clock in the morning. And so I told him, well, you got to get up really early. And I didn't expect him to make it. So I went out and I got the uh, papers and it was totally quiet outside. And I brought him inside and I was putting rubber bands around him. I heard this tick, tick, tick at the kitchen window. And I said, what's that noise? And, and then a scratching noise at the window and we had curtains there and I didn't want to open those curtains, but I knew if I did, there'd be a face there. And sure enough, my friend Dean was on the other side of the glass. He goes, ah! Again, and scared the shit out of me. And oh, I was so pissed at him. One of the situations, you know there's going to be something on the other side, but you can't stop yourself from looking. And anyway, so that harkened back to that episode in Twilight Zone. And when I saw that, it, you know, I said, oh, God, I've lived through that situation. Yeah, some of my favorite episodes on there stayed with me for a long time. So, uh, Michael, at what age, maybe it was your parents, maybe it's your teachers, when did they take notice of your work and they're 
realizing well, maybe I, you're not yeah, average. <laughs> I was artistic from a pretty early age. I remember going to see science fiction movies. Oh, this was before I was eight. Um, and I'd come home and try to recreate some of the scenes that I saw in the Mysterians or, I don't know, uh, This Island Earth or some of those corny science fiction movies from the 50s. I remember when we had to move from Van Nuys, my dad turned over the, the coffee table we had in the our living room and he said, what the hell is this? Because all over the bottom of it, I had drawn controls for a spaceship. And he didn't real, realize that I was laying on the carpet looking up at the bottom of that coffee table and fantasizing that I was in a spaceship going to another planet. And I drew the view screen on there with a, an alien planet terrain, pretty much influenced by um, Forbidden Planet, I would imagine, and a lot of controls and stuff like that. Because in all the science fiction movies I saw back then, they took off in the rockets, they're always laying down, you know. So I was laying down on the carpet looking up at the view screen and imagining that I was taking off and going to another planet planet he never realized what i was doing when i was laying on the carpet looking up at the bottom of the thing but so art as an expression a way of expressing what i was uh, seeing in my my imagination that connection was established really early on when we moved i used to do drawings for friends to put on their lockers or whatever of aliens or creatures and stuff like that and so it was a way for me to make new friends when we moved to a new neighborhood mm -hmm. i would be sitting in class and draw on my desk or something and i remember there there was a show on tv called the invaders and i did a i can't remember what year high school i was in that's probably a sophomore i drew the entire time during one class i do this whole scenario where i made it look like the desk was cracking open and flying saucers were flying out of the desk and the teacher called me into the class later in the day and made me clean the desk off <sighs> And I said, that that's the last time I'll draw on a desk. From now on, I'm going to draw on paper. So it's something I can take home with me and, <laughs> you know, not lose. It was always a way to entertain myself. If I read about a monster in a particular horror story or something, I would try to visualize it, do a drawing of what it was based on the description. That was a lot of fun still is <laughs> <laughs> so you just kind of touched on it but while we're on the subject i know each project is differently but generally speaking how does the creative process work for you is it a concrete idea that you start with and then that's what's on the paper or do you shift as you go like outlining a novel or something like that and how does that work for you oh well it's all of the above i feel every time i go and do a painting or some kind of art thing uh, i feel like i'm reinventing the wheel and <laughs> I kind of let what I want to see uh, influence how I'm going to go about doing it. So it changes a lot from project to project, but I'm not trying to duck the question, but that's just the reality of yeah. how I, yeah. I don't really have an established work process. It makes me a lot slower than some of my peers, but that's just the way that I handle it. With a, a book project, it used to be I'd get a manuscript in the mail, some huge stack of paper, and I'd read the manuscript, do sketches on the backs of the pages as I was reading it, taking notes on what the different characters look like, and then I'd just try to do a cover that did justice to the to the manuscript so it meant doing concept sketches around the same size as the book cover was going to be and i'd send those to the art director they would pick one or ask for changes in one and send it back to me and then i'd do a little color sketch and get to work on the final painting 
but I knew, you know, when my deadline was and I had to get it done before the deadline. And when I first came out to the East Coast, I had already sold the rights to some of my work out of my portfolio to Marvel and to European publishers because an agent from Germany had seen my work at a science fiction convention and started licensing my work to German and, and other European publishers before I even started working for American ones. Well, I sent a portfolio of slides to Daw Books. They offered me an assignment. This is when I was still out in California. So I sold everything that would fit into my Volkswagen and drove out to the East Coast because I knew I had to live out there if I was going to really have a career doing book cover illustrations because all the publishers were centered around New York City with the exception of Playboy, which is in Chicago. And I didn't see myself working for them right away. So so I knew I, did, I didn't want to live right in New York City. So I stayed in New Jersey for a few months and I started exploring in Connecticut for a place to move into. And I rented a house in Stanford and hated that. And we moved up to the, Stan, the Danbury area and I, I liked that a lot. So I've been living here ever since. In the mid 60s, you moved to Colorado and that was when you took yeah. your first drawing class. What did you learn in that drawing class that kind of propelled you to your profession? I can't remember even how I found out about the Rocky Mountain School of Art, but we were in Littleton. I remember taking the bus into uh, Denver and showing my portfolio to the teacher saying, and I know you've got a uh, an age limit. You don't allow students younger than 18 in your life drawing classes, but I'm, I'm really serious about trying to learn how to improve my drawing of the human figure. And I'd done some copies of Michelangelo drawings and drawings out of my imagination. And he said, that he felt that I was advanced enough that I could take the life drawing classes. So I started going to the classes during the summer and drawing from the live model was really a, a great experience. And he was Phil Steele, who ran the, the school, established the school and ran it at the time, also did comic strip work. And so when I saw, I saw his portraits and his oil paintings and also his comic strip work, and I realized, you know, there's no division between one and the other. You know, it's all art, you know, whether you're doing uh, oil paintings, uh, you know, for people or, or book covers or, you know, so I, I, when I started buying Creepy and Eerie magazine, looking at the Frazetta covers, I realized for me, it was all art. It was all fine art, whether it was, you know, for a comic strip or the cover of Creepy or Eerie or or paperback book or something that hangs in the museum. I didn't see a dividing line. So anyway, it was a great influence on me. It really sharpened up my abilities and it really gave me a boost to my ego to, <laughs> to have an artist like that kind of take me under his wing. And so I, I took a summer's worth of art classes at the Rocky Mountain School of Art and it was a big influence in, um, to me. But I have to say at the same time, I didn't ever see myself doing that as a career and kind of indoctrinated into me from youth that I had to be something professional like a doctor or a lawyer or something like that and if i did art it would be a you know a hobby not a when did you realize that you could do it as a profession during the second semester of my junior year in college you know i, I tried combining my love of art and, and biology together and doing uh, medical illustration for journal of bone and joint surgery and some other things i i had a work study program a job working for three years in the anatomy department at san jose state that was a really great education too but i just it wasn't creative enough for me and i i decided you know what i'm going to just throw all my effort into developing my my art talent my art career and following my desire to do book covers i changed my major from pre-med biology major to art and uh, followed that and 
haven't looked back since then, but I've always loved biology, especially human biology, anatomy and physiology. It's always been, it's been an interest of mine ever since I was oh, 10 years old or whatever. Mm. I used to read biology books and anatomy books. I immersed myself in uh, medical illustration when I was, you know, in college. I used to read avidly all the Frank Netter, who was the, the master, the da Vinci of medical illustration. All the Frank Netter books had the complete set of all his medical illustrations at San Jose State. And that'd be what I'd be reading while I was having my lunch in the anatomy rooms. You know, I used to help prepare cadavers for the classes. And my specialty was doing hand surgery. And, and so I did a lot of, I did some hand dissection. And, you know, we used to dismember cadavers and have to skin them and stuff like that. And I had a lot of horror experience. <laughs> yeah, that helps a lot, I and, bet. And you know what? <laughs> I can't believe it now in retrospect, but I can't imagine, you know, eating my lunch and getting a call to go get a fetch a head out of a out of the refrigerator and bring it over to the classroom. And I'd do it and go back to eating my lunch and it didn't affect me. But now looking back at it, I think I'm I'm more squeamish now than I was in my late teens and early twenties. <laughs> That's very Herbert West of you. Before we get too far from the early years, I have to ask uh, I gotta ask about your rock band years in high school. Oh God. Well, I tried to play guitar. <laughs> I never, you know, I never got very good at it. I spent most of my time playing the tambourine and singing, you know, but I tried to fill in on bass once in a while. I'd love playing bass. It was really fun, but I never felt like I achieved any serious proficiency in it. I begged my parents to get me into a music class, and I really wanted to learn keyboards because what our band needed was like a, an organ or a piano player. I swore that I, that was going to be the role I had filled and I scored really highly in a musical aptitude test when I was very young and I had music teachers calling out my teacher saying you got to get your son into a violin class or whatever and they never did it and I hold that against them that's one two things that really pissed me off when I think about it and that I lost a really good chance to learn how to read music and become an apt you know, I have some aptitude on some kind of instrument back then, but I've always wanted to go back to it, and I, ne I never have. Well, you still got a chance. You're still young. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a room full of synthesizers. All my, a lot of my early assignments, selling rights to my artwork to uh, Roadrunner Records for Sepultura albums and stuff, were done in exchange for uh, shopping sprees at Manny's Music in New York. And I would get, you know, a wave station or a cork synthesizer. Wow, that's great. Instead of taking payment, you know. And that for me was, oh, I love synths and I love creating things. Uh, someone asked Gary Newman if he was... A musician, he said, no, I'm more of an arranger of noises. And I felt like that <laughs> described me too. You know, I love electronic music, all kinds of combinations of electronic music and, and heavy stuff uh, really, really grabs me. So, you know, I toyed around composing stuff on synths a lot during the 80s, but art ate up my life after a while. You know, it got to be that I didn't have time for it. And I thought, well, after the kids go off to college and you know that, I'll have all this time to create some music. And I haven't really taken advantage of the time that I've, I've had since then much to my dismay but oh well what are your desert island albums just a handful of them oh god david bowie's low album the soundtrack to 2001 pretty hate music by nine inch nails mm. by trent reznor 
if I had to narrow it down to five albums, the White Album by the Beatles, you know, it's, it changes a lot. It depends yeah. on, on what I'm going through and what I'm trying to paint or create or what kind of worlds I'm in. If I'm going through a, a real heavy science fiction phase and I'll, I want to hear more electronic stuff, I love higher intelligence agency and some of the uh, hardcore electronic groups from the 80s, Depeche Mode and people like that. But I also love, I really love guitar, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and Gary Moore and people like that. They were, you know, Hendrix were huge, huge inspirations for me and continue to be. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm in the mood and I need to really get myself energized, I'll put on Sepultura. I love Roots and Chaos AD and some Serothungal. Uh, I usually stay away from Serothungal except in the summertime for some reason. Around three o'clock in the afternoon, I need to energize myself. So I'll get into metal bands. What can I say? That <laughs> that kind of music really grabs me. But you know, in the winter time, I'll be more uh, ambient. You know, and, and trying to uh, get into just ambient stuff that creates a, a feeling of being in a, a cockpit of a spaceship or uh, on a desert a planet, you know, with uh, windstorms and mm. stuff like that. So there's a lot of variety there and it's constantly shifting. So my answer to that question would vary a lot from different times of the year and different projects that I'm working on. Right now, I'm working on a, creating a book cover for a limited edition uh release of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. So I'm setting up CD play or a, a playlist of all kinds of strange, you know, Lost Mord and people like that, you know, very ambient, Lovecraftian sounding music. There's a guy who, very experimental uh, electronic musician who come out, came out with an album about 1970 or 71, and it was called Entropical Paradise, and his name is Douglas Leedy, and he has one whole side of a of a, an LP called White Landscape, and it's just these uh, roaring wind sounds. It's hard to explain, but in between the the noises, you hear strange background noises that sound like chains rattling or the call of some kind of weird alien beast way in the distance. And it, it was so evocative to me that I set about recreating. I couldn't find the album when I got older. And by the time I was living here in Danbury, I decided. So that's part of the reason I got the synths that I got. I got uh, wave stations and things like that so that I could recreate those kinds of sounds. And I made a three hour digital sounds trying to recreate and amplify the feeling that I had with White Landscape. And I got uh, into uh, sampling a lot of different noises, the sounds of crows, and then distorting the, the sounds and creating. And boy, talk about a rabbit hole. When you get into sound design. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so much. It's so much fun. But it's so it's a it's like a wormhole. You get in there and, you know, I found myself spending weeks recreating or creating noises and, and going backwards and forwards and filtering them all kinds of strange ways and you know by the time i come out of the the wormhole i've created maybe three minutes more music you know <laughs> but it's the same with art when you get into digital art you get having the ability to do non-destructive editing of of art you know man you can get into something and get lost you know and start editing 
pictures pixel by pixel and it's crazy you know if you you can get obsessive in it and it's it's hard to step back and say wait a minute i gotta focus on the big picture not on how this one hair looks on the edge of this tentacle you know way over in the left side of the picture it's really easy to get obsessive about details both uh, in sound design or music and or in art you know in, in digital technology it's whew, amazing you- you're working on some Lovecraft stuff. When we get out of here, I'm going to send you a. I'll send you a link via email to a guy. He is a orchestral Lovecraftian composer. His first name is Graham. I can't. His uh, last name is escaping me right now. I don't want to spend too much time looking it up. But yeah, he's very, very great. That might be something that you'd like. I'm sure it would be. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. send you that. So when you're putting paint on canvas, when you're working, are you listening to music or is it just to All the build time. up? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I wanted to ask you specifically about Elric. You know, how did that relationship with Moorcock and Elric get established and how did you see Elric and make him? Well, the books are so visual, you know, some of those fantasy books that I was called upon to illustrate in the, the late 70s, early 80s are so, you know, I, I see a movie in my head while I'm reading the book. That's really what it's like. And I'm just taking a still out of that movie that's running in my head and trying to move around it kind of like visual moving around your camera in a 3D program to visualize what the best angle of view would be to visualize that that scene or that uh, that experience. So um, as I'm reading the, the books, I'm, I'm doing little sketches, you know, from episodes or scenes. And, and there's a scene like on every page that you could turn into a book cover. So it's it's hard. Thank goodness uh, the Elric books are only, what, 120 pages long or whatever when I'm doing a Brandon Sanderson book. And it's... <laughs> 1100 pages how do you distill that into a single image it's almost a herculean task but i had a visual idea of what Elric would look like pretty early on and he had you know the uh, goth feeling to me that had to come out in the pictures so it's just a matter of painting what i saw in my head trying to figure out the best angle and you know with sailor in the seas of fate having him looming above you you know and seeing the back of the ship that he's on i thought would be the best way to capture the the feeling of of his uh, menace and pathos you know and in one scene and i feel i was more successful in that cover and in stormbringer than in some of the others but to have a feeling that i'll always be going back to doing uh, another elric i've got concept renderings you know in files of paintings i'd love to develop someday there's one in particular of elric as an older person and his hair is long and he's, he's got a white beard that he's got tied into a, these gothic knots and stuff. And he's still got Stormbringer with him and it's still giving him strength to move on to his life. And I really want to do that painting. I've, I've got a 18 by 24 depiction of that scene sitting in my studio and I look at it and say, maybe tomorrow I'll get to it. <laughs> but it's there, it's in my head just waiting to come out. But I've got so many other things that are in there calling at me that I've just keep putting it off i'd like to do another one just uh, in case sierra thungle comes up with another album you know i'd have another image for them to use on a, an album cover like i said uh, there's so many other things that, that i want to do that gets put aside for a later date do you have a relationship with michael moorcock have you guys ever spoken nothing none whatsoever <laughs> wow that's, that's a, harder to believe i met him once Maybe twice. I, if, if I met him again, I can't remember the, the second time. But the one time I recall meeting him, he was signing autographs at uh, Forbidden Planet in, in New York City or some bookstore anyway. And, and I thought, 
oh, geez, you know, I'll take my painting there and have him sign the bottom of my painting. You know, it'd be really cool, you know, as a fan. So I brought with me the actual painting to Sailor and Seas of Fate. And he was obviously under the influence of something. What? I don't know. <laughs> but by the time I got to the head of the line, I don't know whether it was alcohol or dope or whatever, but he looked at the painting and he took out his pen and he signed it right across the middle of the painting, his signature in ink, all across the front of the painting, covering, you know, it wasn't a print. I told <sighs> him, this is a painting. You know, it really pissed me off. It was so cavalier because I put so much heart into the painting. You know, so when I got home, I get a, got a wet sponge full of hot water and it went over it and, and got all the ink off. And I said, well, that, that's the last time I'll uh, ask you know, an yeah. author to sign a painting of mine. You know, that really pissed me off. It doesn't mean I haven't enjoyed reading the other books that he did, but kind of. I can understand. Ruined my <laughs> yeah, that, that just made my head off. hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite Elric story? The Vanishing Tower. Mm. The, the stories in, in that book grabbed me the most, but the first three books and Stormbringer uh, really uh, were my favorites. I'd be hard-pressed to pick one over the other, but The Vanishing Tower, I'd say, was, was my favorite. I'd have to read them all over again. It's been years since mm. I've read them now. So we, you did just mention, we mentioned uh, Lovecraft a few minutes ago. I wanted to ask you about the illustrations yeah. for the Del Rey books. Now, how did uh, how did you pull those images and put those onto the covers i don't know <laughs> you know do you know how the assignment came about i don't I, i've been doing you know for years i've been doing the cover my favorite assignment every year was came in march around march Daw books would contact me and they wanted a cover for their upcoming Daw's Year's Best Horror Stories anthology. And I loved it because I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted. You know, as long as it conveyed a feeling of horror, the illustration didn't have to touch on any of the specifics of any of the stories in the book. A lot of the times the books hadn't been put together when I was called upon to do the cover. So I didn't have stories to draw upon anyway. But so I'd, I'd do anywhere from, I think, the least number of sketches that uh, are concept renderings I did for the book cover probably five to twelve or fifteen concepts you know all of different approaches for a horror stories cover and they would be largely influenced by things that were going through my life at the time and I remember one book cover was influenced by hearing about the death of or thinking about the death of Jimi Hendrix and I wanted to do an allegory about drug use or whatever so I did a book cover that had all kinds of symbols about drugs and drug use but that was all second Secondary, that was for me, but the figure, the horrific figure in the center conveyed a feeling of death and horror and nightmare, and, and that was the, the important thing for the publisher. So that, that worked. Anyway, I'd been doing these Year's Best Horror Stories covers for a while, but Judy Lynn Del Rey, the editor-in-chief of Del Rey Books, got the rights to publish the Lovecraft novels or books she didn't know who to go to for the covers and she was having lunch with ellen dean foster and she asked ellen who do you think i should get to do the lovecraft covers you know do you know anybody who's good at doing horror and he said well you, you've hired michael whalen to do artwork why should have him do the covers and she said he does horror <laughs> she had no idea so when she found out that I, I've done some horror things, she said, look, she called me up and I came into the office uh, with her and the art director and they said, we've got seven books we need book covers for, but we've got a budget for two covers. What can you do? And I said, well, I'll do two paintings full of horrible things. I'll do them in black and white and one color, red, and so that uh, your production costs wouldn't be high. 
you know, you can take whatever spot illustrations you want out of the two panels that I do, and hopefully they'll supply enough uh, images for the seven book covers. So I went home and I covered all my the windows in my studio when it came time for me to do the paintings. I covered the windows with aluminum foil because it's at this point, I think it was May when I was doing the covers and, you know, spring was blooming and birds were chirping outside and I needed to get into the mood. I put on the darkest music I could find. Mostly it was Klaus Schultz from his ex album and some other dark electronic music. And I just I cranked up my airbrush and, and got some other paints uh, going and black and white paints. And I had these two panels in front of me and I just started painting onto them without any preliminary work. One thing became a big eye. One space uh, suggested a, a tree that was dwarfed and, and contorted and had human figures or eyeballs in it. And, and these big teeth erupting out of the ground and a figure behind a window and a human sacrifice way in the distance and bats flying. Up and, and stuff like that and it just came out it was like looking i made my own dark clouds so to speak and mm. and created images that i saw in the clouds you know like people do and they were all dark horror things that, that i don't know where they came from yeah there was an insect uh, on top of a crate full of people trying to get out with and so the hands are sticking out between the boards and <laughs> I can't tell you where they came from, my dreams or my warped imagination. And and so I got the two panels done and I created them so that one bled into the other. So if you wanted to, you could take prints of the two images and put them together and create a 360 degree seamless panorama of, of horrible things and dreamlike nightmare things. They successfully used them on the books. And it was unusual for me to do a cover for books like that were not narratively attached to the books. So I felt a little guilty about not adhering to my vow to do covers that you could judge a book by. But in the end, you could judge the Lovecraft books by the covers because, you know, he was all about horror. And even though a particular book would have a, a story that I've always wanted to illustrate, like Pickman's model or At the Mountains of Madness, um, my illustration conveyed a, the feeling of unease and, and horror, even though it, it didn't actually have elements from the stories in them. So in 2013, I was approached by Jared Walters, sent to be pressed to do a cover for At the Mountains of Madness. And this time I thought, well, I'll outdo the covers I did in the 80s for Del Rey and come up with something for At the Mountains of Madness that did connect to elements of the story and yet conveyed a feeling of horror. And I've worked on it for 10 freaking years. <laughs> and it hasn't been until last month that I felt I really came up with a concept that I thought would work for that book cover. But I, I've done eight paintings, I think, for that cover. And, and the publisher has held off on publishing the book all these years. Even though he commissioned eight other illustrators to do interior illustrations, they got them done in time for their deadlines. I think one or two may have missed their deadlines and delivered their paintings late, but he's held on to that and he paid me in advance. The only time in my life I've been paid in advance for a commission, which I really regret now, because <laughs> I think that influenced me to, to take my time on it. I just wasn't hit near the mark. I kept using the wrong colors or creating the wrong scenes and it just wasn't working for me. And there were a couple of them that 
Jared liked well enough to want to use for the cover, but I said, I know I can do better. Just hang on. I'm, I'm working on another, on another cover painting and let me get this one done. And this one will beat the one that you're thinking of using. And it hasn't happened till now. So it took 10 years for me to, and uh, so I'm midway through the painting that I know is going to blow all the other attempts out of the water and it'll be something I'm proud of and will really work for the book cover. So do you have any uh, Lovecraft film adaptions that you're a fan of? No, not really. I, I've never seen Color Out of Space. That was recommended to me. That's a great one. I miss that one, and I hear it's really good. So I had the director, Richard Stanley, on here not long ago. It's a great movie. Yeah, that's on my must-see list. Other ones kind of fell short of the mark for me. Yeah. So. You mentioned Frank Frazetta earlier. I have to ask if you met him at all. When I came out here, I wanted to, to meet him, and but I kept thinking to myself, what am I going to say to him? You're <laughs> awesome. I love your work. I love your stuff. What, you know, I don't know, because I have people say that to me, and there's, what else can you say, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you do it? I don't know how you do it. It's, it's you know, I don't know how I did the Lovecraft covers, you know? <laughs> it's, so, it's so subjective. I've seen several of his paintings. A lot of my favorites I've seen in art shows, and I've been fortunate to get to see them, and, and uh, in people's collections, uh, some people who uh, collect uh, his work. And, you know, I look at it, and it's like magic to me. He was born to paint Frazetta paintings, and he, he's done it, and they're, they're awesome, and he was like a god to the people who came afterwards, people like me. So I was definitely influenced by him. I've got a couple of paintings. There was one in my portfolio that is an obvious obviously influenced by his style you know but i've been influenced by so many different artists in my time that he was just one of you know a spectrum of artists but can't deny that he was a natural and the forerunner of so much uh, that's been done since his emerging on the scene i never got a chance to meet him or his wife or his family so and the other one i wanted to meet when i came out to the east coast was norman rockwell and i never got a chance to get up there and see him either so i missed out on some opportunities is because i just kept delaying getting around yeah. to doing it yeah it's unfortunate i gotta ask you um, you've had a legendary career you got countless amount of paintings and illustrations which would you consider the most challenging are there any that you lost sleep over well yeah this out the, at the mountains of Memphis. <laughs> yeah. i i would like to i i think you could make a book out of all the previous attempts you know i've got so much preliminary work I've done for this, trying to find the right key to an image that I think would do the book justice. And, you know, I've got paintings of tentacles and arms and, and explorers of, you know, their bodies laying in the snow, you know, and their twisted expressions. And I've got heads and screaming explorers, you know, polar explorers. And I've got a, a mountain of material that could go into a book. What's the word? Showing a map of my obsession with trying to get the right, the right image or the right image for me that would satisfy me and all the false paths I went trying to uh, to get to this point. It'd be really interesting. I, I think someone like Stephen King could write a book about somebody like me who has an assignment like this and becomes obsessed with it with the point that he goes down this rabbit hole and actually becomes mad himself. He can't grasp, he can't get quite to the point and he gets so desperate, you know, that he goes to some really really wild lengths to try to access parts of his brain or parts of his imagination that 
aren't normally accessible. So you go through uh, alcohol and drugs and, and everything, trying to find uh, the right way to approach this project. And, <laughs> you know, it, it'd be make an interesting story. Agreed. Because <laughs> I could see it happening. I could really see it happening. You know, I, I teetered on the edge for quite a while. You know, like I said, I've got notebooks and sketchbooks full of horrible things, attempts to, to grasp the horror that and and the alien architecture of the city that he describes it's got to look inhuman and as a human can i possibly create something like that unless i enter a state of mind that's not inhuman you know or, or <laughs> distorted that's the question so, there are ways to do that yeah there's ways to do that and i will go into that but you know, I, I explored some of that and it, it didn't lead me in the right pathway, but, you know, I had to give it a shot. So <laughs> <laughs> the college try. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we kind of touched on this a bit earlier, but I like to ask everyone this because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yeah. And I try hard not to believe in it, but I've had a few experiences that stand out. There was one when I was in college. I was laying in bed with my girlfriend and trying to sleep. It must have been like 2.30 in the morning or something. And we heard this noise. And I thought, what the hell is that? This house we were renting, believe it or not, we were renting this house for $75 a month in Cupertino, or a suburb of Cupertino, actually. And it used to be a garage, so it was pretty a pretty sketchy place. But anyway, there, there was this noise, and I listened to it and listened to it, and I put on a pair of jeans, and I walked out barefoot, you know, into the summer night, looking around, trying to figure out where this noise is coming from. And I'll never forget, it's like a movie in my head, but I, I walked out a ways onto this driveway, and I turned around, looked up over my my shoulder and on the roof on the peak of the roof of the house were a circle of cats must have been seven to nine of them all in a circle all right looking at each other and right over them was the full moon and i thought god this is like right out of a movie this can't be real but it was it was happening and i was looking up at them and they all turned their heads and looked at me all together at the same time they were like talking to each other in this weird cat language and it's going and they were looking at me and and they were saying you know we're doing our thing and we don't want you interrupting us <laughs> and i said it's okay go ahead and do whatever i i'm not going to get in the way of you and, and i stepped back and, and walked quietly back into the house and went into the house and they went out for a little while longer and they must have broken up and went their separate ways so i don't know what was going on <laughs> maybe it was a mating ritual or something or some kind of full moon thing but there was a scene in a Stephen king book that was uh, kind of a semi-sequel to the dark tower series where one of his characters comes across a collection of building bumblers these bumblers these fictional raccoon like creatures that are in the dark tower series where they're in a, a circle in the moonlight and i thought wow either i told steve that during one of our conversations about my experience with the cast or he's experienced it or he delved into my dreams from some psychic connection or something and saw that image in his head and had to put it in the book but when i read that scene in that book it well, it didn't freak me out, but it sent, sent a real shiver up my spine. The, just that he made this mental connection and got that into the story. It was really cool. So, <laughs> and, and I've had experiences with psychics that 
are not to be believed. I mean, I hesitate to tell the stories because if you didn't live through it, it's hard to believe that it really happened. But I, I saw a psychic guy when I was 21 or so who uh, I heard about from a friend of mine who drew a floor map of my parents' house, which I'd never seen. They had moved to Colorado. They were living in Littleton again, and um, I'd never been to their house. And this guy drew a floor map of my parents' house, and he said, you're going to get an invitation to visit them soon. You should go, because while you're there, you you bring good luck to people. You'll bring Your dad will get a raise. While you're there, you're going to help him finish building this fence he's building in the front of the house. In the back of the house, they don't care about because they let their dogs roam around there. I didn't even know that they had a dog. <laughs> he said, there's a big mountain of dirt, you know, in the back and the, in the... Uh, the back left rear of their their backyard and they just let the dogs run around on that and this room here he drew a rectangle and said this room is your parents bedroom but they shouldn't sleep in there because something horrible happened to the family that had the house before in that room well everything happened you know i wrote all this down because my friend said if you go see this guy he just went by the name van he was a dutch american guy he said make sure you take a notebook because you'll forget half of what he said to you if you don't write it down and i saw so i wrote i was writing it down as the guy was in this kind of trance telling me this stuff and he drew the like i said this floor plan on this piece of paper and uh he told me some other stuff that would happen and so I don't know, a couple of weeks later, I got a, uh, an envelope, a letter in the mail, and it had plane tickets for my parents to go see them. And so I flew out to Denver, to, I mean, and I went to Littleton to their house, and the fence was there, and I helped them finish building the house while I was there doing <laughs> Easter vacation. They had dogs the mound of dirt in the backyard. I asked if something happened to the family in the house before, and they said they had a baby that got into a, a box full of pins that the mother left on and swallowed the got the, the pins in its throat and had to go for emergency surgery or something to get these uh, needles and pins out of its system. And how can you predict? How <laughs> could a, a person get such a detailed vibe, you know, about something that was, you know, so far out of my experience. It wasn't like he could read my mind or get clues from me about what their house looked like or, you know, whatever. So that was pretty, pretty amazing. And I've uh, once I met a, a palm reader, first thing she said to me was, you're an artist. You know, and later I come out and I said to my wife, do you see paint on my hands? How, how <laughs> I'm not wearing a shirt. I'm, I don't have a spot of paint on my... How'd she know that? And she said, there was one, another one that said, uh, you're going to have a baby boy. I see a boy in your future. And I had to laugh because uh, we had a, a girl at that point. And that's what I wanted was a girl, a blue-eyed blonde girl. And we got what we wanted. And I was going to go uh, get a vasectomy again. And, and that's, that's all the kids we wanted. Years later, we did have another child. We had a boy, it was a boy. And so that, my mind went back to that prediction. And, and I thought, here, I laughed at him at, at the time and said, boy, this guy is bogus, but it really turned, it really happened, turned out to be true. So I, I try to keep an open mind. I don't believe in ghosts and I would love I would love to experience that and, and say to myself, yes, there's life after after death or there's something after death. But, you know, the jury is way out on that one. And I would need a lot of convincing now to, to believe in that. But a lot of the paintings I did for myself, the gallery paintings I did in the 90s were about 
exploring the concept of a soul or a life after death or the possibility of that. And so it's, it's something that weighs on my mind. And when I think of these fortune tellers and how they, they could had a sense beyond what we normally experience that makes the needle in my mind go one direction but my cynicism my disbelief go in another direction so it, it's tough it, you know yeah. uh, we won't know until we experience yeah, exactly it. Uh, as far as life after death goes it's wait and see kind of deal <laughs> yeah did you ever hear the quote that uh, stephen king said about uh, when he had a conversation with stanley kubrick I did. uh before the shining while the shining is being made kubrick said isn't every ghost story positive because it establishes that yes there is life after death it, it confirms that in the minds of the people who experience the ghost experience so whatever horrible thing happens in in the mansion at least you come out of the experience saying yes you know there there's a possibility that we're gonna you know now it could be negative you're going <laughs> to a hell or whatever but you know there's something there you know and mm-hmm. and it establishes that so every ghost story has a positive connotation of life after death is is a happy ending in a way so that's a, a weird thought you know and steve didn't know how to react to that what do you say it's the question is nothingness worse than some hellscape you know which would you prefer yeah <laughs> so what's the best art advice you received in your career and who gave it to you oh boy the best art advice i've had is advice i've given myself i hate to make it sound so so egotistical, but learning to trust my own instinct and to uh, have faith that what I do is going to turn out to be worthwhile. That was something I had to discover for myself and create for myself. I sought affirmation from my teachers and it meant a lot to me to have teachers say, yeah, you got what it takes, you're going to make it. But I always had my doubts and then was never convinced that I would until it happened. Never fully convinced of it until it happened. So, you know, I, I got a lot of good art advice from my favorite teachers. One of my favorite teachers is Maynard Dixon Stewart, who taught at San Jose State Art Department. He was full of great advice. You know, he talked about his, I guess the core of his teaching is in the phrase, rationalize your your vision, rationalize your sight. And what he meant by that was what you're taking in visually, understand how the natural world world is creating that image. You know, so whenever you're looking at a face, think of what the back of that head looks like and, and why the shape of the head is shaped the way it is and why light is falling on it. He was very much into the science behind the art. And I could see how that concept influenced classical artists like Vermeer. There's a scientific explanation for the way he painted the way he did. And it makes it comprehensible and understandable so that it's not totally a subjective experience. But on the other hand, there are masters like, well, in the music world, Mozart or Paul McCartney, or uh, in the art world, there's people like Frazetta, you know, who seem to have simply a natural subjective talent to create magnificent pieces of work, you know, just out of thin air. I don't know how quite they do it. It's wonderful to watch. I've watched people like Boris and Julie painting, and to me that it's magic. It's really magic. I know they use photographic reference for some of their stuff and everything, but when you're watching them paint, 
you know, I, I'm saying, where do you get that color from? I don't <laughs> see that color <laughs> in my head. You know, I would go in a different direction. But, you know, that's what makes his work his work and my work my work. And when I realized that I'm here to create Michael Whelan's artwork, not a copy of Rosetta's or a copy of Boris's or a copy of Vermeer or a copy of Michelangelo, I'm the only Michael Whelan I know about. And I've got to do the work that I've been put here to do that only I can do. And I can only find that by following my instincts. And so I tell students and people, you know, that you're here to create your work. I, I had a person who was kind of like a, an apprentice to me briefly, and he had been a Vietnam vet. Or he was, he is a Vietnam vet. And I remember, you know, a lot of his early paintings were bad copies of things that I had done. And I would tell him, don't do Michael Whalen paintings. I'm here to do Michael Whalen's paintings. Do your paintings because, you know, you've experienced things that I can't even touch on. I don't know what it's like to wade in a swampy river carrying a, a gun and being shot at and experiencing death close up. I mean, I, get, I have experienced death close up in my own way. Yeah. You know, through my medical training and stuff, people in accidents, you know, get hurt and, and stuff, experiencing horror movies, you know, and stuff like that. But he's experienced in a wholly different visceral way that I can't access. I can try to, but, you know, I didn't experience that. He's lived it and felt it. I said, got to access some of the, the horror. you've and, and he was briefly a, a cop and he's, you know, had to uh, maintain the scene of an air plane accident you know where bodies were burnt and lying there and he experienced it he actually experienced it so you know i said draw on your life and everybody in the world has got their own personal experiences of things that horrify them or move them or is a personal issue for them or a family life uh, incident that caused them to withdraw into themselves and, and find some fantastic escape you know, so you got to draw on, on what you've been given as a human being on this earth and incorporate that in your fantasy and your art and, and make it your own and, and make it different from everybody else's. I love it when people can do that. There's a guy named Alan Williams. Man, his horror, his creatures and stuff, you know, are just are just amazing. I look at him and I say, man, I, I wish I, you know, this is the stuff of my nightmares, but <laughs> I've never... I've never drawn upon my nightmares in quite this way and made it so organic like he does. You know, so it's great to see other people's work that express different aspects of, of the things that I'm into that, you know, I'm not given access to. So it's, it's pretty cool. And there's a lot of good artists out there. Oh, my God. <laughs> there's so much good stuff happening right now. It's just uh, mind boggling. I can appreciate it, but I've got to do my work. Well said. A lot of great advice in there. <laughs> so, Michael, just to put a bow on everything, what's on the horizon for you? you? Know What's in the pipeline you can tell us about? Well, you know, I've got a number of unfinished paintings that have been clogging up my studio, and they just need little changes or uh, additions, and I've been putting them aside because I've been diverted by other projects. And to be honest, this Lovecraft thing has really stymied me. It's been an artistic block that, that's been on my shoulders for, well, like I said, 10 years, and I still have all the sketches and the, the previous paintings and the other attempts at doing the covers you know, on easels and hanging around my studio. And to finally have this thing wrapped up 
and have it done and give it to Jared and say, this is it. He's seen the, the compliment that I did for the study I did for this painting. And he said, wow, you know, so he's, he's very psyched about it too. You know, this is going to, oh man, the celebration I'm going to have after I get that done and delivered. I'll be free to go. And there's at least three paintings that I, I'll want to get done that are waiting to be finished that are personal paintings. There, I know there's another Brandon Sanderson fantasy novel for me to do a cover for in the wings. He's working on it and I've been waiting for that hammer to fall. <laughs> so I, I want to get as much done as I can between now and when that happens. So there's two horror paintings that I want to do for myself that express uh, horrific, scary themes uh, related to our relationship to nature and where I see the human race going. But though they would work as horror covers, uh, you know, for horror books, definitely. But can't wait to get them done. They're in the pipeline. And so I've got a lot of personal work I want to do. But in the meantime, I'm so full of ideas and everything that it's it's hard to choose a path. But the path that cleans out my studio and gets a lot of this unfinished stuff out of my out of my life so I can have space again to expand into other territory. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I want to try to get done in 2023. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. I appreciate you giving me some of your time. I don't have anything else for you. Well, it's great talking to you. And anytime you want to connect again, I'm uh, all up for it. Got a lot of anecdotes uh, from my <laughs> medical school days and uh, about uh, people like Meatloaf and whatever. So anytime you want to chat, I'm, I'm available. Oh, we'll definitely have to do it again. Thank you, man. You're welcome. You have a great rest of your day, and I'll send you guys a link to this once I get it all polished and prettied up. Okay. That was fun. All right, great have, talk to you. You too, man. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Michael. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>